If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it to the, the letter to the Ephesians and the first chapter. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians is in the New Testament towards the end of the Bible. And um, it's as there are 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament. This is one that was written to a church in Ephesus. And we've been uh, working our way uh, through this letter, just taking apart phrase by phrase. You remember how Paul spent a couple of years uh, preaching for hours each day, every day, in the public square in Ephesus, and it gives you a sense of the richness and complexity and wonder of the Christian faith. So whenever you're opening a letter like this, what you are actually encountering is something very much concentrated. Um, In the last week or so, my wife um, went and found some elderflowers a couple of streets away from us and made up an elderflower cordial. And this stuff is sweet. I mean, you do not need, you won't want to drink that straight. You have to dilute it and add water, and then it, it arrives at, its, at its, what tastes good. And uh, there's something like that happens when you read one of Paul's letters. When you are encountering this in its richness, it's like cordial, and it has to be stretched and opened up. And that's what we're seeking to do in order to understand what's going on here. I'm very aware, however, that particularly in this section that we're looking at in the first chapter, where Paul is immediately speaking about eternal heavenly realities. There's an inadequacy in me as a preacher to be able to find the words to fully articulate the truth of what we're hearing and its implications for our lives. And that's implied even in the passage itself that we We cannot grasp these things except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need God to come and open our hearts. And he does it sometimes uh, in almost a violent way, sometimes in a very gentle way. But he opens our hearts to see and to understand and to perceive um, realities that change our worlds. And that when you live in light of them, realities that shift how you live and how you think and how you feel and how you act. And that's what we're interested in. As we open up this passage, I want to just pray that God's going to do that right now. Lord, we are here before you and before your word. And we sense, Lord, that our dullness and the inadequacy of our understanding to perceive and comprehend truth, even who you are. And I want to ask, Lord, that as we pull out and open up the phrases and the words in this letter, that somehow by a work of the Spirit, the truth will land to bring about very real, concrete changes in our lives. Amen. Let me read to you from verse 15 of chapter 1 to the end of that chapter. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, if you were here last week, you'll recall that what I think is in the sort of the implied background to what Paul is saying here is that the reality is that Christian differs from Christian. If we were to examine each one of our lives, even in this room, what we would discover is that each of us has a different sort of degree of maturity in the faith, a different measure of spirituality. And you could almost put plot people on a spectrum, that there are those here who, um, for whom you, you would not consider yourself to be a Christian at all. And uh, you're still questioning, you're debating, you're trying to wrestle with whether God is there, whether he's real, whether the claims of Christ are true, whether he really was the son of God, whether he died for your sin, whether he rose from the dead. And that's a wonderful thing to engage in. Then there are those who would happily wear the label, call yourself a Christian, and uh, perhaps you've grown up in that environment. And for some people, it's particularly true within your, your upbringing and where you grew up that to be a Christian is the norm. But that has never really connected with the reality of your day-to-day lived experience beyond the fact that you attend a place of worship now and then. And the word for that is nominalism, which just means in name only. It's possible to be a nominal Christian. You wear the name Christian. But if you're honest with yourself and with us, you'd say, well, it has no bearing upon my day-to-day life. It's not as though when I enter work on a Monday, um, there's any real visible dimension to my Christian faith. And I don't pray, and I don't read the Bible, and I don't have any real relationship with God. And then maybe there are those who... Uh, further on in the sense that you would consider yourself to be something of a conflicted believer. You, you believe these things, and you, you feel that there's a degree of conviction in that belief. But you're also aware of a great tension and conflict in your own heart, that there are moments when you are particularly drawn to things that you know are contrary and contradictory to your faith. The, the New Testament describes this as a worldliness, and you know, there's that battle between heavenly realities and worldly realities, and that touches your life in different ways. It touches your, your, your sex life. It touches your, how you think of money. It touches how you think of ambition and, and, and time and everything that you have volition, choice over in your life. There's a tension between the worldly opportunities and the heavenly opportunities, and you, you feel that all the time. I think every believer feels that, but what I'm saying is that there are those for whom probably predominantly it's more that you live a life that denies the faith rather than professes it. And then there are those, and I think this is what Paul is describing here in in this church in Ephesus, who have a kind of faithful, steady, and dutiful Christian faith. He opens the passage and just says, I've heard of your faith, your love, and I don't cease to give thanks for you. He's saying there's something very real and authentic and genuine in you, and I'm so grateful to God for that reality. But he still finds himself on his knees in prayer every day because he senses that they need more. And I think what he feels is true of this Ephesian church is something that seems to to develop over the years to come. So that many years later, when you're reading the letter, so when you're reading the book of Revelation and you hear the voice of Jesus speaking to John, writing letters to each one of the churches, Jesus addresses this particular church in Ephesus. And what he says to them then is, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, but you, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. He's saying that on the surface of things, you're a very persistent, enduring, faithful, dutiful 
church. There's a reality to your faith that's praiseworthy. But if I look in your heart, it's, it's as though the fire has dimmed and the love that you have for the Lord is no longer there. It's no longer the case that you remember your first love. The joy you had when you met Jesus. The extraordinary way in which he filled you with happiness. And I think that's what Paul's beginning to see in this Ephesian church. You have faith, you have love. But I don't cease to pray for you, brothers and sisters. And what does he pray for? He's praying that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened because he's saying that there's more. And I think that what he wants for them and what we must have is a zealous faith. Zeal in the Bible speaks of the fire and the warmth of your love for God. And there are believers for whom there's a full integration of of their entire lives. Everything sort of comes together. Their fiery heart, their love, their soul, their mind, their body, their will, everything is engaged with the things of God. And that is always the reality to which God wants to call and summon us and draw us. And you know, for Paul, as you see all through the Bible, I think, there's a sense in which it's better to live at the extremes. It's better to, you know, the worst place to be is somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, as I've described it. Either the Christian faith is false, in which case it's not worthy of your time. This is all a complete waste of resource and energy and time and effort. Or it's true, in which case you must live accordingly. And I think you see this in Paul's own reflection upon his own life. He says here, in one place very provocatively, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's thinking about the resurrection, the future resurrection from the dead, he says, what do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised. So he seems to be describing there either the spiritual battle he was in when he preached in Ephesus, or perhaps being put in the arena when there, you know, it was Roman blood sport, wasn't it? To have people contest with animals. And who knows, maybe that's what Paul experienced. But I think he's more describing a spiritual reality. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? In other words, if there isn't at the heart of the Christian faith the truth that Christ was raised from the dead and that that changes reality for the Christian entirely. And then he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If it is not true, if the Christian faith is not substantially accurately true, then it is far better to live your life in the moment for pleasure in the here and now. And I'll say that without hesitation. It's better that you take what's yours and you live to the full for whatever pleasure you can grasp at in the here and now, even though you and I know that it's so fleeting and hard to take hold of such joy. But if it isn't real, then that's all there is, right? It's better to be at the extremes. If it's not true, be there. Just, just don't even bother. Or else, or else, if it's true, it demands everything. I'll say to you, if you're a seeker, I'll say to you right now, if, if you don't find substance in the claims of Jesus, I think you should run away as fast as you can. Don't live in that middle place between, you know, being interested in the Christian faith, but also kind of wanting to have your cake and eat it, because you'll just be miserable in that, in that space. 
They run away. If, you don't, if you're not convinced and haven't, haven't become convicted that it's true, or maybe there's more work to do, but ultimately don't, don't settle for some kind of empty religiosity. It's not worth it. But if it's true, if it's real, it's worthy of everything that you are and have. And that's the message for us who are Christian also, isn't it? The great question, I think, that is in the back of Paul's mind and that drives him to write and to pray as he does for these Ephesian Christians is this question of how does a person live consistently then with the extraordinary, world-shaping, life-changing claims of the Christian faith? How do we live consistently with that so that the truth that we confess and profess filters down into every dimension of our being and changes how you live and act and feel and think? How does that happen? And the answer seems to be in grasping this reality in the deepest part of your soul. This is why Paul's praying for them. I don't think you can you can be gripped by the Christian faith apart from a work of God, and therefore it will drive you to, the, to your knees where you cry out to God, as Paul is crying out here, show me reality. Let me perceive what's real. And let that knowledge be more than just the intellectual grasping of ideas and concepts. Let it be a knowledge that filters down into the depths of my being and shapes me from the inside out. This is what he's praying for for them and what he's experienced himself, that you'll grasp reality. He puts it here. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to see things, in other words, that you've not seen. The very thing that we were just singing right now. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What, is the, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what are the, is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Now, these are the verses that we sought to open up last week. But I want to move on in the passage because he's continuing in this vein. There's more that you must see. What is it that he wants them to see by the, by the working of God's presence and spirit in the life? In, in, deep in your life, deep in your heart. And there are three more things that, that we need to open up here. And it is the power of God towards you, the authority of Christ over you, and the dignity of the church around you. He's expressing, in other words, an entire worldview here, which, if true, changes everything for you in your day-to-day life, but which is false, must be rejected. The first, then, is the power of God towards you. He's praying this, verse 19, that you will see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now I think that what is in the background here. When he's praying, look, you need to understand this power of this mighty God. What is under background here is the understanding that the Christian life is fundamentally a life of faith. You know, you and I know that. We call it a, the Christian faith. It's a life that is contingent upon, dependent upon, you accepting things by faith or trust, as the word means, that you cannot necessarily verify by your eyes and ears. And this is what the, new, the Bible constantly praises in the life of a Christian. Jesus praised faith whenever he met with it. Always as he's interacting with people through the Gospels, there were those around him whose faith disappointed him. 
He says, oh, you of little faith. He says that even to his disciples. And then there are people who impress him because their lives exude that kind of confidence and that upright sort of confidence in who God is, that they have faith. They trust in the power of God. So, for example, the centurion who Jesus meets with, who's asking Jesus to heal his child. And he says, look, you just say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus says, I've not met faith like this in all Israel. You're a Gentile. And you've got faith, and it gives pleasure to the heart of Jesus when he encountered this kind of faith. The Bible tells us that God loves faith. In Hebrews 11, for example, do you remember how it's that great chapter that talks about these examples of faith? It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And it's describing there something that happened in Genesis where a man didn't die. He was just taken straight to God's presence. He was, and it says he was not found because God had... God had taken him, and now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whatever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The Bible is constantly saying, look, what gives pleasure to the heart of God when he looks at a life like yours is the degree to which you have faith in God. You believe that he's real and you live your life accordingly. Just to help you understand the connection with the day-to-day struggles of life, you know, that chapter, Hebrews 11, fills out so many examples. But my favorite one is the example of Moses. You know the story of Moses, how his mother and his sister put him in a, a little basket of bulrushes and set him afloat on the River Nile because the, the Egyptians were slaughtering the boy Israelites, the Hebrews. And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. He finds this little baby floating in a little boat, and she takes him and adopts him to be her very own, to be a prince in the palace. And so he grows up, this Hebrew boy, a despised people, grows up with, a, with an Egyptian heritage and legacy and identity. He grows up as a prince within the palace. And yet, he's not ruled by that new identity. It tells us about him in Hebrews 11, that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What he's describing there is the tension of heart that exists within every Christian. Do I take what pleasure I can have in the here and now? Or do I live with trust in the promises of God and the future rewards of eternity, even if they're not here in my possession right now? And so deny myself for future gain. Now for, for Moses, that was an extraordinary battle. He was a man who grew up within the context of extraordinary privilege. And you know how it is that when you grow up with every pleasure at your disposal, you are more likely than not to indulge to the maximum. And it's what we see among the great and the powerful and the wealthy in our world even now. Such corruption, such indulgence of every desire, giving over to immediate gratification and pleasure because it's all yours. And for Moses, he would have been one of the most privileged people on planet Earth at the time, given that he was in the palace of the most powerful ruler who lived in that era. 
You want women? You want indulgence? It's all yours, Moses. It's there on a platter. But it says that he refused to be identified with that reality. He chose to forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin because sin only gives you momentary satisfaction, choosing instead the reproach of Christ. In other words, choosing instead to be one of the rejected, despised people to say, I'm a Hebrew, and to wear that identity. I'm a Hebrew. It's a way that a Christian stands up in the world and says, I see all, everything that's on offer around me, but I bear the name of Jesus. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of the way. And people can look at you and puzzle, why? Why would, you, why would you deny yourself? Why would you say no to the, the opportunities in front of you for the pleasures that this world offers here and now? Surely, if this is all there is, then just take, take. The Christian says, no, I, I stand here in faith and trust in the power of God. And that's what Paul wants these Christians to grasp because when you see it, it changes everything for you in the here and the now. And in order for them to understand the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards them, as he phrases it, he wants them to look specifically at the way that power was put on display in the life of Jesus, our great forerunner of the faith. The question is, how do you summon up that kind of faith? And you can't believe like this just by straining really hard. I sometimes think that we, we think in order to pray by faith, we've got to screw up our foreheads and strain our buttocks and try really hard to believe the things that we say are true. And that's sometimes what people think it means to summon up faith or to take silly, unnecessary risks. But what the Bible tells us is that this kind of faith, this deep conviction, this certainty in the most inward part of your being is a response to seeing the faithfulness and the trustworthiness and the power of the God that you serve. And we understand that in day-to-day -day life, how faith is contingent on faithfulness and trustworthiness. If you go to the bank and ask them for a loan of however many hundreds of thousands of pounds in order to buy, well, let's say millions now because we're living in London, in order to buy a place to live, then they want to look at your record, don't they? They want to see, okay, are you someone who is faithful and trustworthy with your money? Have you gotten yourself into debt? Have you, have you paid your bills on time? And if you're faithful and, and able, you have power to execute what you say you'll execute, then we'll give you money on trust. That's how faith and trust works. The same is true if you needed life-saving surgery, like you, want, you had bowel cancer or something like this. It's very, the, the reality is that surgeon differs from surgeon. You want to look at the record, understand, is this a surgeon who is capable, who is able, who has a good track record, who is able to see his patients recover? And if so, then I'll entrust my life into his hands. And this is what, how faith and power and trustworthiness all interact together. And this is what Paul's saying. If you can see the power and the trustworthiness of God, then you can live as though he is real. And the degree to which you don't see this explains why your Christian life is struggling. And he says, look at Jesus. He says it's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's saying the power that's available to you, Christian, the trustworthiness and the power of God is the same power you saw at work in Jesus. And what happened to Jesus? Well, look, the Bible shows us this unbroken thread of the promises and the trustworthiness of God. We have to go way back into deep history. 
Even into the Garden of Eden to first hear the murmurings and utterings of God's intention to raise up a ruler for humankind from the descendants of Adam and Eve. He describes the seed of Adam who would crush the serpent's head. And then we move through into the book of Genesis and God encounters Abraham. And there he says, out of you I'll raise up this offspring, this seed. And he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And all through the Bible, there are too many examples for me to enumerate to you because they are everywhere through the Old Testament scriptures. But there are these whisperings and these indications and these, these promises that what God would one day raise up a ruler. In Numbers 24, here's one of the most beautiful ones, where Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Saying, one day out of the descendants of Israel, out of Judah, will arise a star who will ascend into the sky and be the ruler of all humans. And all through the Old Testament, there's this gathering expectation, this promise. And it's an unbroken chain of the promises of God that takes us all the way into the expectations that are in David's Psalms. And you see there particularly, Psalm 110 is particularly important here. Where it opens in this way, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, to Jesus really, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus is born a baby and he grows up in human flesh and he's living on the promise that God is going to one day make me king. But he encounters temptation. Do you remember how the serpent seeks to trick him and tempt him when he's out in the wilderness fasting for many days and nights? And what is it that Satan says to him there when he's being tempted? He tries to lure him with power. He says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. But Jesus is one who lives by faith and trusts. No, God will vindicate his promises and he'll put me on the throne. And so when we jump forward to Paul's vantage point here in Ephesians 1, what he's saying to them is he's saying that everything that God said he would do for the son, he has done. Everything that he was whispering about from the deepest parts of history that gathered momentum and clarity until the coming of Jesus that was fulfilled as he died and then was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and poured out his Holy Spirit on the church and the church that's now expanding into every part of the world as it was at Paul's time and which now 2,000 years ago can be seen in every continent and almost every nation on planet earth and most language and tribal groups now have someone who professes the name of Jesus. What Paul is saying is everything God has said he would do for him he has accomplished and is accomplishing that's the power of God now look at that track record Christian what does that mean for you now in your day-to-day battles when you're questioning do I do I take do I grasp what's here now do I take the marshmallow that's on the plate in front of me the reference there a famous experiment. I'll not go into that now. There's no time. Or do I say no and trust in the mighty power of God who did that for Jesus and therefore will also fulfill his promises for me in eternity? And a Christian rises or falls based on that, whether that, that is what you grasp in your deepest, innermost being. You doubt God, you'll just indulge. 
You say, well, I've got this money, it's for me to enjoy now. I've got this opportunity for pleasure, I'll just jump into it. Ah, but if you trust God, you'll be like Moses. You cast off the fleeting pleasures of sin. You bear the reproach of Christ. You bear the name of Christians. Say, I understand the almighty, immeasurable power of God towards me. And I know, I know that I can trust him. That's the Christian life. One last verse before I move on to the next point, just to underline this. This is exactly what it says in Hebrews 12. Having contemplated all these examples of faith, he then turns to the Christian, to you and to me, and he says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these, all these believers who've gone before us, who've shown us what it means to trust God and believe his promises, he says, let us also, let you and me, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, if Jesus could go through the fiery trial of Gethsemane and go to the cross in faith that God would raise him and vindicate his faith, Christian, he's shown you the way. You trust the power of God over you. And then you can say no to sin and temptation. And you can endure and you can live a vigorous, powerful Christian life that's lived by faith. And that's not weak and floundering in doubt and instant gratification and failure. Know the power of God over you. The Spirit has to open your eyes to see this, brother, sister. Then he tells them that you also need to know the authority of Christ over you. He speaks of the Christ, the power of God that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Now, let me just try and open this up by asking you the question, what do you understand the gospel message to be? I think nine times out of ten, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? Most of us would focus on the personal dimension of the gospel. The gospel is a savior who died for my sins so that I could be forgiven, was raised from the dead so that I could have eternal life. And you'd be absolutely right. That is the gospel message. But let me ask you a question. Why is it that wherever the apostles went preaching a gospel, they were so viciously and violently persecuted, particularly by the powers over them, the Romans? If it was just a gospel of, oh, God can forgive you, what about that message elicited the response of angry suppression and oppression of Christians? It can't just be that, can it? And the answer has to do with this word gospel. The word was actually a word that was in common parlance at the time, evangelion. It meant something like an announcement of good news, but there was almost always used to announce the ascension of an emperor, a new emperor to the throne. We've just celebrated the Jubilee, and it marks the moment at which the queen took her throne and took in hand her royal scepter. 
And whenever an emperor rose to the throne in, that, in those days, messengers would be sent out into every major city across the empire to announce the name of the new emperor. And they would preach a gospel to the people who heard them. The heralds would announce a gospel. That's what gospel meant in the time in which the gospel, our gospel, the Christian gospel, was being preached. And now when you understand that, you can begin to see the world-shaping implications of what Paul is saying here when he says things about Jesus like this, that he's been seated with the Father at his right hand. That's enthronement, isn't it? That he's far above all rule. Oh, hang on. Does that include the emperor? All authority, all power and dominion over every name that is named. And God's put all things under his feet. Now, especially that last phrase. When um, in in the ancient world, when a king conquered another king, one of the visible symbols of that conquest And even a way of sort of mocking his opponent would be this idea of your opponent being under your feet. So in the book of Joshua, for example, there's a wonderful example of this that just kind of of expresses to us what this symbol means. When there's a battle between Joshua and five Amorite kings, and Joshua overcomes these kings, and it tells us that they brought those kings out to Joshua, and Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men who of war who'd gone with him, he says, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near, and he's inviting all his chiefs, all his top men who were over the kind of tribes of Israel. And it says they came near and they put their feet on their necks. They stood on their necks just to kind of as a symbol of conquest. And it says, Joshua said, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then we go back to the psalm that I just mentioned to you, Psalm 110. A messianic psalm, an announcement of a future king, of Jesus coming, where it says, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, this future king, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until and otherwise I put them under your feet. There are many examples of this all through the Old Testament, this language of conquest. And so what's being described here when we talk about the gospel of Jesus is more than just the reality of you experiencing forgiveness. That's so important that you know forgiveness, that your sins can be wiped away, but it's more than that. There's a profoundly confrontational aspect to this gospel. What Paul was preaching and what got him in trouble was this conviction that Jesus is now king over every earthly power and authority. Sometimes this is described by theologians as the cosmic gospel. I don't really like that phrase because it makes you think of outer space, doesn't it? And while it's true that Jesus is king over the furthest reaches of the universe, it's not very helpful for me for understanding his lordship in my life. I rather like to think of it as a global or political gospel, the way in which Jesus says, I rule everything and it's all mine. And that filters right down to the personal implications of the gospel for you, brother and sister. What Paul had encountered when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was a risen Lord whose authority he could no longer deny or scorn. He had thought that Jesus was just a crucified pretender, 
crucified like a criminal outside Jerusalem. I thought, all these Christians, all these followers of the way are deluded idiots. And more than that, they're dangerous because they're preaching about the rule of a Messiah who's actually dead. We know where he's buried. And then he met Jesus on the road, the ascended Lord, in all of his radiance and authority and majesty and power. And he's blinded and he's falls on his face and, and he's totally submitted and surrendered and it changes his life instantly, doesn't it? And that's much more, isn't it, than a gospel of forgiveness. Paul needed forgiveness. He knew that. He came to realize what a wicked sinner he was and he says, you know, Jesus is merciful to me, the worst of sinners, to show that he can be merciful to any of you. doesn't matter what you've done. If God forgave me, he says he can forgive you and that's part of the gospel. But it's so much more. The gospel is also that Christ is ruling and reigning. And in a sense, he's demanding of you your surrender, your submission. That to take on your name, on your lips, the name of Lord is to say you rule, Jesus. It's to bow to the name. That's why he says here that Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that's named. Makes me think of his letter to the Philippians when he describes the journey of Christ, his humiliation upon the cross, but then his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand. And he says of him that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he's Lord. Now this is why we need more of the Spirit in our lives, friends. Maybe you're not a Christian. And you say, well, these are big claims because my eyes tell me a different story. When I look out upon the world at large, I don't see Jesus ruling and reigning. I see climate change and I see economic meltdown and I see wicked rulers invading vulnerable countries and oppressing vulnerable people. These are the things I see. I don't see Jesus on a throne. And therefore, why would you offer him your allegiance in an act of submission that would cost you everything? Why would you do that? And I would say, well, it's only possible to surrender your life to Jesus when you begin to see and appreciate the reality of his ascension to the Father's right hand, that he is ruling and reigning, and that all history is moving inevitably to its final end and consummation when every knee will bow before Jesus. And unless and until you can see the truth of that, you cannot be a Christian, because it's too costly But even Christians need to see this more deeply. Because, friend, it's true, isn't it, that in your day-to-day life, there are parts of your life that deny the lordship of Christ. Is he really the sovereign lord over you? Does your life reflect that in full obedience and surrender? I think sometimes we're like the Israelites. You remember the story of Moses going up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, how he's up there encountering God for 40 days and 40 nights. And meanwhile, all the Israelites are encamped around the foot of the mountain. And because Moses has gone so long, they begin to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe he's not coming back. 
And they start to construct an idol, a calf, out of all the gold that they melt. And then they bow down and worship the calf. And then they start sleeping with each other. And they start having all these, um, the, all this kind of wild lifestyle. And Moses comes down the mountain. And he's like, what happened? And he drops the two tablets of stone on the floor. And they smash kind of a symbol. Like, this is what the law means to you. It's what God means to you. And sometimes that can be a description of the Christian life. Jesus is very much on the throne, but you're down at the foot of the mountain acting as though he isn't. And he'll surely return. Or sometimes our lives don't reflect his lordship because we're ruled by fear. We're like the Israelites when they were confronted by that enemy Goliath and how he stood before them and, and challenged them. Go on. Send your best challenger to come and fight me, and whoever wins will win the war. And the Israelites are trembling in their boots because they're acting as though God isn't sovereignly in control of all things. Of course, David arises and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to oppose the armies of the living God? The living God. Isn't that the phrase? He's alive and he's in authority. When your life doesn't reflect the authority and the power and the supremacy of Christ, then you are captive to your anxieties and your fears. And you find yourself cowering and living as it were in the dark rather than in the light of his, his supremacy. We find ourselves unable to live emotionally healthy lives. Every bad news headline shakes us and causes us to tremble. We're worried. Will the economy completely crash and spiral into oblivion? Will all my savings disappear if you have any? Will there be, will there be, um, will there be an, a climate meltdown? Will all the animals die? Are the dolphins going to disappear? And all this thing, you think, is Jesus really in control? And our emotions are controlled by the fears and the fear-mongering that's all around us. It's been around us ever since the dawn of time. What Paul is saying here is this, the Christian... He stands upright. Well, not only see the power of God towards you, but also the authority of Christ over you. Do you see it, friend? Does your life reflect these realities? Don't you need, don't we need a greater measure of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, as Paul puts it, in order for us to see the truth of the things that we confess? To grasp reality and to live like this is true. Finally and very briefly, he speaks of the dignity of the church. I don't particularly want to open this up at length because the, the church and what she is and her beauty is going to be a big subject matter later in this letter. But he's, he speaks here of Christ who has all things under his feet. And it says he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again, this is a paradigm-shifting, worldview-changing perspective that every Christian needs to grasp. You know, when I ask you the question, what do you think of when you think of the church? What are the emotions and images that first come to your mind? More likely than not, they are negative images or neutral ones. You might think of buildings. You might think of cold stone. You might think of relics from a bygone era that spoke of a devotion that once existed among a people we don't know now faded into history. Or you think of 
structures and corruption and power and organization and the institution of the church and all the exposure of evil that we've heard of splashed across our news headlines. Or you think of politics and the red-faced angry lobbyists that exist in some parts of the world who call themselves Christians but who seem to only be known for what they are against. Or you think of ceremonies and men who wear dresses and the corruptions of of all that, that, that exists within that kind of empty religiosity. And whatever you think of, you just think, this is not something I particularly love and admire. Jesus, I can get interested in. He's great. The church, not so much. And that's a tragic thing, because it's certainly not what Christ feels, and it's certainly not what Paul articulates and feels. And he uses these striking images and expressions. He speaks of the Christ who's been given to the church. He says that that God put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church, which means not only does Christ own us, but we also possess him. So whatever you think about the church, the body of Christ on earth, understand this, that she has a privilege that is immeasurable in that she can say, Christ is mine. And he also speaks about Christ being, the church being the fullness of Christ. He says the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, which means somehow in a mysterious way that the body of Christ is incomplete until the church reaches its full maturity. And every man, woman, and child who confesses Jesus as Lord has been joined and added to that body, the church, and then the fullness of Christ will be on display. I can't fully grasp and understand these things, but what it tells me is this, that the church is not just precious and special to God, but must be precious and special to us. And it was to the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, you need to see and feel these realities, the power of God towards you, the authority of Christ over you, and the dignity of the church around you. And it's possible to live a Christian life that ignores these realities, and that Christian life will be marked by compromise, by mixture, by a kind of faith-denying practice. Or it's possible that these truths will sink into the deepest parts of your 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 knowledge and understanding. To me, it is a tragic fact that some Christians are barely distinguishable from the world. And we're caught in the same pleasures and pursuits and ambitions as everyone around us. And our lives in that sense become a denial of the faith that we preach. And the diagnosis that explains why Christians act like that is because the things that are real are not real to you. You maybe pay lip service, but the reality of them hasn't really gripped you and transformed your reality and your attitudes and your affections. But the Christian who begins to see what Paul sees and what he's praying that these Ephesian Christians see, and what I'm praying that you will see and that I will see. This power of God that I can put my faith in, this authority of a supreme Christ that I must pay fealty to and obey. And the beauty of his church. When that becomes your worldview and your reality, it shifts everything. It's like a body in space flying through space and then coming into orbit around a great celestial object like the sun. When this becomes your central reality, 
These truths become your central reality. It's like you find yourself in orbit around the Son of God. And then all the direction and trajectory of your life is controlled by this new reality. You're no longer a body spinning off into space into meaningless and directionless void. Christ is everything. Wouldn't you rather be that type of Christian? Or it's like the experience you can have when you're caught by a current or a tide. You're powerless to resist because the reality is that that is bigger than you, more powerful than you. There was a story in the news just last week of a surfer who'd ridden the largest wave that's ever been ridden outside Portugal, a famous place, spot where these waves are enormous. They make you look like a dot on the face of the wave. And he said, I had no comprehension of the size of this thing spatially, but I felt its power. And that's how I knew the wave was absolutely enormous. And that's what it can feel like when the realities of this gospel filter down into your heart. Suddenly you feel the surging power of this reality shaping your entire life. And the conflict and the, the frustration and the uncertainty and the wavering and the inner battles of which way you should go. Do you want to indulge or do you not? All of that becomes resolved by the inevitability of Christ's lordship over you. 